0: Welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast. Here you will find Dr. Cindy Elliser and Kat McKeever, researchers at Pacific Mammal Research, talking all about marine mammals. We will have a variety of ways to share information with you through discussing research articles and news stories, interviews with other researchers, and more. Join us to learn more about marine mammals and have some fun. Welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast. I'm Cindy. And I am Kat. And this week is a journal review, and now I can't exactly remember why we ended up finding this one. I remember we were, I was doing some other research for either one of the other podcasts or something else, and I was like, oh, this paper's so cool, we should do that. Um, (laughs) So that's how we found this paper. (laughs) Um, But it's really cool, because it's, we're talking about, I think we're talking about the the killer whales in... um, In Spain. In Spain, yeah, and the... Uh, interactions and culture, and you know what's going on there. Um, and so this came up, which is uh, by Pitman et al. And this is humpback whales interfering when mammal-eating killer whales attack other species, mobbing behavior or interspecific altruism. And Question mark? Question mark? Yes, it's it's always <laughs> interesting. Uh, and this was in this is in a relatively older paper. It's uh, July 2016 in Marine Mammal Science um but it's always interesting to me when we're talking about animals and you know different species and especially high, highly intelligent social animals um and altruism like because it's it's that's one of the things that's like well only people kind of have that or you know it's it's one of those distinctions between people and animals i think that um mm-hmm. many people use but there's evidence that it's possible at least that other species mm-hmm. can do it too so that stuck out to me um, and since we're talking about killer whales and all the crazy stuff that's going on around the world <laughs> killer whales um, we thought this would be an interesting one to kind of uh, piggyback on that uh, and talk about all humpbacks so this one is a it's a it's a, it's a longer paper we pulled it up and it's like 50 pages and we're like Whoa! Um, <laughs> but like 22 of those is one table with all the different interactions that they that they list so it's it's a relatively normal amount of uh, of paper maybe a little bit extra but <laughs> it scared us for a second
1: <laughs> but we'll try to we'll try to condense it for you don't worry we'll we'll summarize we'll pull out the salient points as we always do so you right. don't need to read all 55
0: pages if you- yeah unless you unless you want to um but it, and it is very interesting um but yes it, it'll so this will be a little bit more of a challenge um for us to uh to keep on track and on time but we're going to do our best <laughs> So, um, so basically what we're talking about here is cetaceans in general. So the, the background here is that, you know, there are anecdotes of dolphins helping each other or other species, including humans, um, that are fairly common, right? Um, a lot of some myths come from that, but also are based in, in true, true stories um, that dolphins will you know, circle a swimmer that's lost in the sea and keep sharks at bay and things like that. It's pretty, a pretty common tale um but there's more evidence um that sh- that shows that other larger cetaceans like humpbacks um do too and i was wondering here i'm like i wonder if this is again partly because we're out there more right a lot of the stuff we don't see because mm. we just haven't been out there looking at them right
1: yeah and so many of the interactions that they do discuss in this paper which we'll get into a lot of them are historical accounts not necessarily contributed some of them are contributed by researchers but some of them are contributed by just other people who happen to be on the water so like you said i mean being out there is essential and especially for these larger species too i feel like you know happening across some of these yeah and happening across some of these encounters is less frequent because they're more out to sea and yeah exactly
0: Yeah. And and I think actually the majority of the accounts were from more opportunistic in terms of Mm -hmm. fishers or things like that Mm -hmm. that are out there. So Mm -hmm. another great point of how that kind of information is anecdotal to some degree, because not researchers doing it, you know, um, is really important and can show us a lot of that we don't normally would be able to see. Yeah. So the... um, these are, they're they're basically mostly interacting with mammal eating killer whales, right? Because there's mammal eating killer whales and fish eating killer whales, and then other killer whales that eat everything, <laughs> which we'll <laughs> talk about a bit. Um, but these specifically, the majority of these encounters are, um, are with mammal eating killer whales, which do, um, e- will eat humpback whales, right? So, um, you know, the question is why on earth would humpback whales want to intervene <laughs> With, with predators that will eat them you know that's a good question hmm. um and what's interesting is uh, just briefly the, the the they're uncertain about the impacts of marine um mammal eating killer whales on humpback whale populations because they just haven't seen attacks that often but you know is that due to the fact that almost all of the large whales were recovering from whaling and quote most living humans have never experienced oceans that were not already depleted of large whales So, is it the fact that they don't do it or the fact that they don't do it because there's no whales to do it on? (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, which is again, like you said, it's that are we just not seeing it Mm -hmm. versus is it happening at all? So, it's again, it's that same question coming up.
0: Yeah. And I I thought this was really interesting. I just recently read a paper um, by Jesse Moran about forage fish stocks, uh, uh, forage fish stocks up in Canada, and basically saying that what we're facing, what we should return to, like what we should recover to was already at a 99% depletion. Wow. Yeah, so it's the same thing as these shifting baselines where we're referencing, yeah. oh, this is what it used to be like so plentiful, but that even that was was reduced. So yeah. the absence of evidence as you were saying is is not evidence, right? That it didn't mm-hmm. happen, it just means we don't see it because it can't. Um, right. And then also I thought it was interesting towards the end of whaling, the killer whale populations that fed on them likely had either declined Became extirpated, right? Had to move somewhere else, or been forced to switch prey to alternative prey. So Mm -hmm. they may also be in a state of recovery. So,
1: (laughs) right. So So, yeah, I mean, like you said, we're kind of dealing with this very nebulous starting point where we really don't know what the baseline has been or is currently. Yeah. For this behavior.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I thought that was really interesting. I hadn't, I, you know, I I get the the large whales, but then I was like, yeah, that's right. The killer whales would have also had to adjust. So like Mm -hmm. we're kind of in a state of flux um but there is mounting evidence that suggests that killer whales are regularly do uh attack humpbacks and i have written down here attached instead of attack <laughs> which, <laughs> i mean i guess they do attach themselves when they bite but um and and so you know this had previously again thought to have been rare and generally non-lethal um and then the this evidence is showing that calves and juveniles are the main targets which makes sense and we'll talk about that and the fact that the the humpback whales are so large, they're basically um, immune, adult ones are kind of immune to um, these kind of attacks that would be lethal. Mm -hmm. Um, So they they base that information on rake mark studies that show um, that they rarely attack adults, but regularly do attack calves and juveniles Mm -hmm. Um, and could be a significant source of mortality. Again, we don't know because they often they'll just sink before or get eaten and we won't know, you know, we're only documenting the survivors.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, and so this other important aspect, before we get into the, the depths of it, is um, is the fact that even regardless of the mortality, this could create what, what they call a landscape of fear, which can change behavior. So the threat of a mammal-eating killer whale could significantly affect the behavioral decisions of the humpback whales and have potential population-level consequences. So the easiest one to think about is Yellowstone, where the wolves were r- removed and then all the elk were like woohoo and they had tons of babies and they took over and then all the trees started dying because the elk had had destroyed the trees from rubbing and stuff like that and that had um, ecosystem consequences but when you um, um when you put the wolves back even if the wolves weren't actively killing in that area if the wolves were around that area the trees were protected because the mm-hmm. elk made different decisions <laughs> to not yeah. kill the, the wolves um yeah. so The yeah, and this it has to do with the migration, right? The the migration route that these humpback whales take, and even possibly the reason why they migrate um, may have to do with this kind of avoidance behavior, um, and you know, changing what how they do things because of that threat.
1: Mm -hmm. And again, like if you think about that as a knock-on impact to the ecosystem, you know, if they're if that's influencing their decision about where they migrate to, or Mm -hmm. when they when they migrate and do these different cycles, that will have a massive impact on you know the the biomass that they are feeding on themselves as well in these specific locations so it actually has pretty far-reaching consequences like you said which is kind of fascinating to think about
0: yeah and again the the whales are the um you know fertilizers of the ocean right they go up Mm -hmm. and they poop and they they basically feed the plankton that they're then going to eat on again so uh it could have you know larger impacts than just what the whales are doing for sure. Another key thing to keep in mind when, as we're going through this is that there are two basic, there's fight or flight, right, for prey. And the larger, more streamlined whales are thought, like many of the work walls, are thought to be flight, right? They can just swim faster than the orcas can. Um, but slower moving whales like humpbacks and gray whales and things like that use their bulk and powerful, oversized appendages, which we'll talk much more about, um, to ward off attacks. So these guys are fighting instead of fleeing um and they have been known to show group de- defense behavior which we'll talk about uh and that the escorts with um, oftentimes a mother and calf will be attended to by a usually male um escort where they call it an escort um, may help defend the calf as well so um so the idea is okay so okay maybe they defend themselves okay well that makes sense right you're defending your calf or yourself or whatever from being eaten but what they're showing is that they may actually interfere with the attacks and actually go into danger like firefighters rushing into a fire <laughs> uh mm-hmm. and not even for their own species so why is the is the main question right um and so cool. yeah it's 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 very interesting um and so that's where this study came from so they are looking at that like okay well, they actually do interfere so let's look at all these interactions who who went to who you know who was the instigator who approached the other uh, if it's known um, and the power of this study again as Kat said earlier comes from the fact that and I and um, that we're on the water more and we're taking not just research information we're taking it from people who are out there on the water more often than a lot of times the researchers those um, whale watchers and and other boats that are out there all the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, with that, the the methods, um, it's they they did a, a long time, <laughs> they looked at observations over 62 years from 1951 to 2012, with 40, 54 different observers from around the world, um, the majority of them were up in the, Pacific, in the in the north kind of Pacific Northwest, the eastern Pacific area. Um, but they were opportunistic from passengers or naturalists on whale watch boats, researchers studying killer whales or humpback whales. These are mostly photo ID studies, long-term photo ID studies. Um, and so there is variance in accuracy of detail and in interpretation. And so what I, I like that they did is that in, in the table and the appendix that they, uh, supplementary material that you could download, uh, they left basically all the accounts as is, like literal, trend, you know, just writing down what the people said, um, with some, sp- some parts in brackets that are, you know, to clarify what was meant or whatnot, but it was, I think it's good that they left it as it was so that you can see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they did have to clarify which ecotype, Um and so basically they, there's the, maram- the mammal eaters, the fish eaters, um, mammal eater killer whales were ID, um, if in the appendix that thing they said that there were transients, right? transients or big killer whales or is usually the denomination that is used for mammal eaters. Um, if they were attacking marine mammal during an observation, so that seems obvious. or if it if an attack occurred in tropical or subtropical waters. this is because in in more northern or colder um colder waters, southern or northern, um, they killer whales tend to have a more specific diet. Um, mm-hmm. Like here, we have our fish eaters only eat fish. We have our mammal eaters only eat mammals, and then we have the offshores that eat sharks and and, and brinks. And they don't really mix. But in the tropical waters, I think because there's just there's not as much there, it's it's less uh, nutriently rich. Uh, they have unspecialized diets that include marine mammals. So, and um, I remember hearing about one in the Eastern Bahamas off of Abacos. They followed a Caribbean killer whale for a day and saw them eat five different species.
1: Wow. In one day. Which again, even saying Caribbean killer whale, you're like, what? That exists? Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's so timely. The, they also just, uh, someone just had a video from Key Largo of a killer whale. Um, oh, that, wow. Yeah. Did you not see that? Uh-uh. Yeah, yeah, it's on Facebook now. They, um, it came real close to the boat, and so everybody's like, Oh my God, they're a killer girl. It's like, Well, wow, they're not there all the time, but it's probably part of that Caribbean bunch that just, you know, took a (laughs) walkabout.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Pretty cool. So, um, um, then they broke down basically who was the interactor, you know, who was the initiator, who went. Did the humpbacks go to to the attack, or did the killer whales go to the humpback whales? Um, were they tests or attacks? So testing would be a, like a brief pass, like "Oh, what are you doing?" "Oh, I don't care. Okay, I'm leaving." Or direct, attacks were longer direct contact uh, between the two species. Um, they tried to know if the their humpback whale calf was present or not, because that is important, probably uh, mainly for if they're, uh, the killer whales are attacking. Um, the sex of different uh, of either species was determined either by genetics if they were doing biopsy darting at the time um observation of the genital slits uh and or if the mother was close with a calf it's pretty obvious that she's a girl mm-hmm. um the escort was defined as a male with a, with a cow-calf pair um and this is interesting because it was previously thought that escorts were only during um breeding grounds um but they have shown that they see them on migration routes and i think even possibly in feeding grounds i can't remember now but um yeah
1: that is that is one to clarify because they do explicitly state that the normal the normal use of the term escort is not actually how they're using it in this paper. So I do just want to clarify for anyone who is doing humpback research and is like, well, wait a minute, that's not what it is. So, um, so yeah, in this, they are defining escort as any humpback that accompanies a humpback cow-calf pair. So it doesn't have to be a male. It most likely is a male, but it doesn't have to be a male in the context of this specific paper for the purposes of what they're looking at.
0: Yeah, and this is specifically for those outside of the breeding grounds because they're looking them at them during basically during the migration route. I think most of these are from. Um, so, group includes animals that are within one humpback body length of other conspecifics, other individuals. Um, and then the um, humpback whales—they had a couple different behaviors: bellowing, which I actually never heard of before, mm-hmm. uh, and these are loud exhalations when the humpback whales are excited. And
1: Really, I would, I'd love to hear it. I need to go, I need to go, I need to go, I need to go YouTube it. I was like, I didn't have time to do that, but I was like, ooh, that sounds so intriguing.
0: I know, me too. I'm like, what, I don't understand, like loud exhalation, how is that different than just like, you know, like, like our puffing pigs and harbor porpoises, like it's just a loud Mm -hmm. exhalation, how is it different than, than that? But anyway, it apparently is, it's been described in many different papers, Um, so it's a thing. Uh, And then mobbing behavior, which is one or more humpback whales approach a mammal eating killer whale and do one or more of the following. Charge or chase it or follow it. There's one, there's um, some discussion of that as well. Uh they bellow, they will slap or slash their flip with their flippers or tails. Um, and then other cues, when mobbing, a killer whale will actively flee or avoid them. Mm-hmm. So they're like and they run away. So that is the uh, mobbing behavior. So those are the two main category main behaviors we'll be talking about when we discuss the results um, and what's going on so we'll take a quick break now this is is probably not going to be an even break in the middle as we kind of tend to do (laughs) Um, because there's a lot of a very interesting discussion for this but uh we'd want to give you a little break before we dive deep into that one so uh, we will be right back hello listeners this is cindy the research director at pacific mammal research and I wanted to take just a minute to thank you for listening and supporting our work. And I wanted to see maybe if you wanted to learn a little bit more about the background of what we do and what we see in the field and other kind of cool information that you can get by subscribing to the podcast for only $5 a month. You can get uh, ad-free episodes as well as these many episodes where we discuss the things we've seen in the field, the stuff we've gone to with workshops, uh, and other little interesting tidbits of information for our subscribers only. This is a great way to help support pac who we are a very small nonprofit, so every, every dollar helps us continue the work that we do and provide the information and the fun podcast that we have uh, that hopefully you guys are, are enjoying. So if you can, think about it, subscribe to the podcast and help support our work, and we hope you enjoy. All right, we're back. And now we're going to get into the results. Um, so, as we I, I briefly mentioned before, the large majority they were found around the world, but the large majority were seen in the eastern North Pacific, north North Pacific, especially uh like by Monterey Bay, Canada, and up in Alaska. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think some of that it's a combination of research groups and then also the whale watching uh, opportunities in those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like. Tw- Twenty, it was it was quite quite a bit of them that were in um, each of those uh, areas, but there were the map was actually pretty well distributed in at least in space of different places around the world. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, the, the like ninety five percent were humpback whales with ma- marine uh, mammal eating killer whales. Uh, only about five percent were fish eaters or, or either known or suspected, um, and. About 94% were actually identified to the ecotype. So there's a few that they couldn't say one way or the other. But the overall whelming vast majority was these guys interacting with the the killer whales that can eat them, which is important. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, The mammal-eating killer whales approached 26% 26 of the time. The humpback whales approached 37% of the time. And then it was unknown who approached in 38%. And then the humpback whales initiated 58% of the encounters when the when they knew who started it. So a lot of these uh, interactions happen when people show up to an event, right? They bump into, mm-hmm. oh, well, this thing is happening. So they don't know who showed up first. Um, right. So when they did know who showed up first, the humpback whales initiated. And I think that's really important to remember as we go through here, that it's not that they're just happening at the same time or they're nearby even sometimes these animals are coming from far away to interfere with whatever's going on
1: yeah and which we'll is, we'll get into it's so exciting
0: yeah, very interesting um so when the killer whales approached this is pretty standard I mean I think makes sense um 93 percent were, mar- were mammal eating killer whales um and then usually if when the couple times the fish eaters approached they were like went up and just kind of like, were like and harassed them a little bit and then basically benign and then just like, well, oh, that was fun. Okay. And then left. There wasn't anything. Yeah. It's
1: kind of, there's, there's not really any intent shown necessarily to do anything, but it is curious to me that they harassed them even as the, I don't, I mean, maybe, maybe they felt like the humpback was threatening to them where maybe they had calves in their group too or something. And they were like, right. ah, I don't know if you want you here, but
0: like you're messing with um, my fish. Go away.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, but yeah, as you say, kind of basically non non confrontational.
0: Yeah, non issue. Yeah, non confrontational. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then the um there were uh, no other prey species observed, but they but small ones could have been missed. so they could have been like oh there was a uh, you know a sea lion over there somewhere.
1: Um, and this correct. is when the marine, this is when the mammal-eating killer whales approached the humpbacks. Just to clarify, so when the yes. mammal eaters approach humpbacks, no other potential prey species were observed, as far as we knew.
0: Correct. Yes. Fine. Um, and then calves were pre- present in sixty-three percent of approaches, and they attacked ninety-four percent of the time. So that's, I mean, pretty obvious. That's why they're going to see those those humpback whales. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at least seventy-five percent, and probably hundred percent of times, the calves were the target. Um, and they other indication is that also that there were longer interactions um, when cats were present than when they were not. So
1: they were right. a lot more interested for sure.
0: right. again, like if you, if it the killer whale is going against up for, to an adult humpback that's like healthy, it's not going be <laughs> it's not going be end well for the killer whale, really. It's, it's not going to get them anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so interestingly, though, when there were no calves present, because, again, depending on when they're along their migration route, sometimes it can be difficult to tell a calf between between a calf and like a young juvenile in size. Uh, and so when it was, you know, they thought no calves are present there. It, there's still evidence that younger or juveniles were targeted um, because of that, because some of the animals looked smaller than the adults. Um, and then if it if they weren't present. uh sometimes it was just a brief test or harassment and gone like they're like oh hey maybe there's a calf there and then they showed up and was like oh okay that one's a little bit too old for me
1: (laughs) yeah it's almost like they're kind of shopping they're kind of going in and going like "Hmm, is there anyone that we could possibly target here oh let's kind of psych these guys out a little bit and then as you said sometimes there weren't any that showed up and they're like okay fine I guess we leave
0: (laughs) no I just I just had a, a vision of a humpback of a killer whale with like a shopping bag and like, mm-hmm. like, that was what um, i was thinking of
1: when i was reading the paper
0: yeah like mm, this humpback no that was a little bit too big okay well we'll, we'll go down the next aisle <laughs> right um only two cases were thought to be lethal to the calves but otherwise there was no evidence of life-threatening wounds so i thought that was interesting that they didn't nobody mm-hmm. basically saw except for those two times the calf actually die doesn't mean they didn't but mm-hmm. um that they were able to defend i guess is basically the point yeah. Oh, no, the humpback whales. Um, so then with humpback whales approaching, again, ninety-three percent of them were to the mammal-eating killer whales. Again, those interactions with the fish-eating killer whales were uneventful. Um, but really interesting is sometimes they traveled for miles to reach the encounter. Uh, over mm-hmm. f- over like two or three kilometers. Um, eighty-seven percent of the time, the killer whales were attacking or feeding on prey when the humpback whales showed up. Um, when Which the- is important.
1: Yeah. We'll get into that a little bit later too in the discussion. So put a pin in that. That's important. Yeah. These these attacks were likely already underway when the humpback showed up.
0: Exactly. And oftentimes not on humpback whales.
1: They were mm-hmm. eating
0: other things. Uh, so when the initiator was unknown, 50%, 56% of the time, um, there was eight different prey species, including humpback whales. Um, so those are the other instances where we don't know who showed up first, but there were lots of different ones. Mm-hmm. So overall, they were 11 different species of prey. Humpback whales, gray whales, minky whales, dolls corpus, stellar sea lions, California sea lions, Weddell seals, crabator seals, harbor seals, northern elephant seals, ocean sunfish, and an un prey that was non-humpback.
1: So when we say prey species, what we're talking about here, again, just to clarify, because I know we're throwing a lot of animals and numbers and percentages. What we're talking about here is what... Eating killer whales were predating upon or attacking when the humpback whales showed up just to make that explicitly clear so there were 11 <laughs> there were 11 different prey species that were being attacked or predated upon when these humpbacks showed up to various different interactions
0: right so they're showing up not knowing who is being attacked is the important
1: yes thing. again key key thing to remember there
0: and remember that these mammal-eating killer whales; these are from worldwide. So obviously, the ones, you know, the ones in the Pacific are not eating crab-eater seals. Those are the ones down, like, <laughs> Antarctic, <laughs> um, right? Antarctic, not Arctic, right? So crab-eater seals, yep. yeah. Um, so that that's just a, a point to be made that they're it, those are dependent on where those locations were that they were observing uh, what prey species are. Uh, but all actually, almost everybody else could have been eaten in the um, in the Pacific, mm-hmm. Eastern Pacific. Yeah, every other every other mm-hmm. one except for the, what else, seals, the cactus, Waddell seals and maybe Weddell seals and maybe ocean sunfish. Although there was one washed up, I think recently.
1: Uh, I was and- gonna say we did actually. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. So, Side maybe. note. <laughs> <laughs> Side
0: note. Um. Okay. So, but interesting, Interestingly, that you know they don't have the sexes for all, you know a lot of them, but for the ones they did, both males and females approached. Uh, and what's super cool. This is my favorite one because I love anything that has to do with photo ID and showing how powerful that can be. There was a single male in event number 60 who was also photo identified Mm -hmm. as one of the two males in event number 62. Both events involved mammal-eating killer whale attacks on a single stellar sea lion in the icy strait Alaska, one in September 1988 and one in September 2003, 15 years apart.
1: So this is the same humpback. Same humpback. Who's going into action here Mm -hmm. on two different occasions that were recorded separately 15 Mm -hmm. years apart so cool so
0: cool and again we'll go to that uh, individual differences which we'll talk about Mm -hmm. um so getting into some of the humpback whale behavior um the what's interesting is that so they have basically offense and defense right so if they're being attacked Mm -hmm. they're going to be defensive but sometimes they're coming into these attacks and they're not being attacked themselves and they're not um and they're not even attacking other humpback whales it is uh, that's going to be an offensive uh, approach but the behavior whether they are doing being on the offensive or the defensive the behavior is the same
1: yeah They're- so they use the same the same strategies for either tactic basically mm-hmm.
0: so the most common is slapping flukes at the surface or what's also called a lob tail which you see it's kind of like a cartwheel like your the tail end of her Um, or slash side to side. Um, That was about those either were lobtails or slashing side to side was 36% of the time, bellowing at 26% of the time, Um, pursuing behavior, so chasing 21%, and then flipper slapping 14%. And we'll go into why those are particularly important in the discussion. Uh, And I learned some stuff too about how powerful that could be. You don't really think about it in that terms. Is there something mm-hmm. slow? <laughs> like how big these animals are? That doesn't matter. <laughs> it's intense. Um, and then mobbing behavior, which was following, chasing, or charging, uh, was, was found in in more than fifty five percent of the encounters. So very common. Mm-hmm. To which makes sense if you are trying to actively stop them from attacking something, mobbing them would be a good way to do it because they they are mm-hmm. bigger than the orcas. So and uh, humpbacks are like, is it fifty to sixty feet? I can't remember if gray whales are bigger than. I believe so. Somewhere around fifty-ish is a, is a pretty good size. Uh, and then killer whales are usually like twenty-five, thirty feet, something like that. So yeah, are twice the size basically, and weight.
1: Way- I think yeah. it's about fifty feet for a humpback.
0: Yeah, I think that's about right. So um, so they 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 do have size on them. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Some reported that the whales changed the outcome, sometimes allowing the escape of the, of the individual prey. Uh, and many described them as coming to the aid, like they, their interpretation of what they were seeing was these animals coming in to help the, with the other animal. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: so five attacks were on humpback whales, four were unsuccessful, the other was unknown. Pinniped attacks were successful in 72%. Uh, but some of these may have already been dead prior to the humpback arrival, so they couldn't even have mm-hmm. the chance of saving those ones. So that that percentage would be lower if you were, you know took those out because there was no way they could help. Yeah. Um, so, but that means that they they you know are unsuccessful as other you know uh, part of the time, which means that the humpback whales may have changed the outcome. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I have this quote, which I thought was a good one to read. This is from um, number 53. We had traveled quite a distance to observe a group of killer whales attacking a gray whale mother and calf pair. And out of nowhere in capitals, a humpback whale came trumpeting in, followed by another and then another, until we had about five or more humpbacks in the immediate area. It was strange because during the entire journey with several observers on effort, not a single humpback whale had been observed. It seemed quite clear that the killer whale-gray whale interaction had attracted the humpbacks, though I could not say whether it was motivated by curiosity, playfulness, or an act of benevolence. The result, however, was that the gray whale-cow-calf pair was able to escape. On other occasions, I also personally observed several sea lions surviving predation attempts as a result of humpback whales distracting killer whales.
1: That's the exact same quote that I had highlighted to read okay. out. I love it. because it's, it's great because they, they do actually include like two to th- you know two or three different quotes that sort of support this mm-hmm. observational um uh i guess observation yeah. um but that was yeah that was the same one that i was just like wow that's just really well written and really striking as to how clear it appeared at least from a human's perspective observing what's going on
0: mm-hmm. what was going it, on here and then it, it 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 sums up i think what most of those encounters are like Yeah, you know that they're and, and you know we they came from uh, over yeah over two miles away sometimes so they're mm-hmm. you know rushing into the fire trying to so, yeah. to, speak, so to speak you know and so yeah. I, I think from a human's perspective too like what what else would that be than altruism you know it, it just from just from a, just from watching it not really thinking too much more about it that seems obvious that like they're going in to help that other animal but mm-hmm. why why would they do that why would they put themselves in danger
1: right question. and or I mean even if you remove which we're jumping ahead a little. We'll get yeah. into that more in the discussion. But I do just want to say, aside from even the danger prospect, why would you use that amount of energy? Like I, that's a large animal going through a very dense material, aka water, like over two miles. That's a yeah. lot of energy expenditure that that animal then has to re- recover. So even from an energetic standpoint, why?
0: Yeah, like you, so, you will we'll get later. getting, de- you know, you, it's a detriment to that humpback whale to do this. It's taking mm-hmm, away energy. Mm-hmm. It's taking away time that they can have to do other things like feed and socialize and whatever. Um, And just to put it in perspective, the uh, a breach when when a humpback, I mean, a humpback or, or larger whale comes out of the water and lands, that takes the amount equivalent amount of energy as a human running a marathon. Wow. And so swimming two miles, although it may not be as much, it's still going to be quite a bit. Like it's a lot of energy. Mm-hmm so and again we'll get into more into that with the discussion because it's very very interesting um but there were so there was some other observations um just in, in kind of general results that the what's interesting is that the killer whale group size the median was six and humpback whales it was two regardless of who approached two, which i thought was interesting mm-hmm. that just kind of seems like i mean there's a range from like one to 17 animals something like that but generally it was like you know a, basically a one to three ratio of one humpback mm-hmm. whale to three killer whales uh and interestingly in the Bahamas um with spotted dolphins and bottlenose dolphins there was a similar kind of ratio like it, it, it took I think it was three or four spotted dolphins to chase off one bottlenose nosed dolphin mm. so maybe there's just a there, maybe there's a sweet spot ratio for, mm-hmm. the, for the humpback whales mm-hmm. to be able to actively chase off the killer whales um the range of time some lasted as little as 15 minutes to over 437 minutes that's like a lot of hours like almost (laughs) um and again many of these were coming in the middle so these are not at all you know start to finish most of them weren't weren't able to watch start to finish i know there's been times where you're out and you're like well it's getting dark we have to go back otherwise we can't get back so we have to leave you know that kind of stuff so they could be extended periods of time so again to Kat's comment about energy you're Coming two miles in, and then you're staying there for hours, energetically fighting off these killer whales. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of energy. <laughs> yeah. Um, moms and others, and uh, like the escorts and stuff, will sometimes raise the baby out of the water, like either on their back or with their flippers. Uh, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. Like trying to keep it away from the that or flank them to protect them, so they can't get to the calf in the middle.
1: And if you've ever seen, um, you know, things like Blue Planet or uh, you know any other documentary, often the mammal-eating killer whales will actively separate the calves from the mom. So that's sort of one of their main strategies for attacking young animals: is to separate it from the mother. And then once they get the baby on their own, they can they can swamp it and do all kinds of things that they wouldn't be able to do if the mom was still present. So these tactics that the humpbacks are using are directly to prevent that calf from either being nipped at or separated from them by the orcas
0: right because once once they're separated now the mom's advantage is gone from just Correct. being larger or not being able to, to block yeah yeah um so then others would join the attacks already in session from miles away um which we've discussed and um let's see there were 38 prey that were reported killed but no humpback whales for those that reported it which was 41 percent of the time um, the non-humpback whale fate of prey, the prey that's non-humpback whale, um, humpback whales, uh, the fate of the prey was recorded 83% of the time, with at least 18% of those to have suspected survived. So I mean, close to 20% that that the humpback whales are conceivably basically saving because because w- whether directly or indirectly in distracting killer whales, um, mm-hmm. it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, so then you know, and then. The general tone for the, the the comments that were made by the observers, some say the humpback whales were attacking, the, were attacking the prey, which is very interesting, or attacking the killer whales. Now, there were no actual hits observed, but basically they're, you know, they're using their big tails and flukes and pectoral fins to swat at the killer whales. And we'll talk about actually why it's likely that they don't actually get hit because the killer whales are smart. <laughs> um, And then others say that it would definitely look like they were eating the the prey that was being attacked. Um, And I thought it was interesting that some of the ones that were saying that the humpback whales were attacking the prey, and they do go into that in the discussion a little bit, but to me, I mean, again, I wasn't there, so I can't really say anything, but it would make more sense to me that they were doing that same behavior of swatting or tail subbing near the prey, so it maybe looks like they were doing it at the prey, but they're actually doing it next to it so that it keeps the killer whales away. Mm-hmm. rather than them actually, because I think it would be even weirder if they were like, no, I'm going to go take out that sea lion.
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing to remember here too is that we are dealing with accounts dating from like 1951. So our knowledge of what humpback whales were and what they ate and how they existed was relatively limited still at that point. So again, like thinking back to some of these accounts, the witnesses who are observing these may not even know that a humpback whale is a baleen baleen whale that they don't eat marine mammals so just just thinking about it in context of when some of these accounts were written you know it's very possible that to them they don't even know what these animals feed on so it's very plausible that that might be what that looked like to them because they don't
0: they don't know any better not to
1: sound not to sound rude but like you know yeah they didn't have that awareness at that point so just bearing that up too yeah um
0: so those are based the the basic very interesting results so we'll move into the discussion about what this all means Um, and they, they go over the, there's just so much cool stuff. Um, but the, um, the killer whales approach, particularly to attack the juveniles or calves, right? That was pretty obvious. Um, and so these humpback whales are approaching almost always the mammalian killer whales. And they know the difference between, um, the resident and they sh- they should be able to tell basically the difference between the vocalizations of resident versus m- mammal eaters. They do have um, different vocalizations, and actually, will we'll talk about that in oh yeah, there's a whole section on vocals, so we'll talk about that then. But um, so they're they're going towards the mammal eating killer whales on purpose. Um, so there's there's risk. Um, to, the risk to an adult humpback is minimal, as we discussed. Um, But there's still cost, right? We talked about that, too. They're going from two miles out of the way. They're interrupting their normal behaviors. Maybe they were feeding and they need to feed, you know, you only have a certain amount of time that you can feed if they're prey. Especially out in the the more open ocean, prey is patchy. So if you Mm -hmm. found a set of prey that you are eating and you left it because you wanted to go help this other individual, that's taking away from your ability to find food um, Mm -hmm. that you need. So, uh so they they do that and then again they stay sometimes for hours um putting in energy to fight off these killer whales uh it's costly to be that aggressive and it's costly to do it for that long amount of time Mm -hmm. um and so even though 85 percent of the time the species was not a humpback whale so it would make sense if they like rushed in and they go oh uh, it's not a humpback whale okay we're gonna It would make more sense at least just in general thinking that oh if they were attacking humpback whales that's why they would stay because they're trying to help their con specific right their other individual of their species but most of the time that was not the case that they show up and they're like oh it's a sea lion i'm still gonna help so why do that with all those costs um involved and so that's what we're going to go into next here so you know Trying to, trying to tease apart why would they be doing this seemingly altruistic behavior um, for species that are not uh, not their own. Uh, I like this quote from, um, it says, this section was survival of the biggest. So uh, as Scammon from 1874 commented about killer whales, it is but rarely these carnivora of the sea attack the larger cetaceans, but chiefly prey with great rapacity upon their young. Mm-hmm. Isn't that great? <laughs> Love it. <laughs> um, so basically, that's saying it, it. There's minimal risk to an adult humpback going into these situations, even if they're outnumbered by the killer whales. They're likely not going to be able to be attacked, but again, they are still putting in the time and effort uh, that can be detrimental to them. Um, so then the next section was the armed response and this one I thought was so interesting and some of this I kind of knew but other I hadn't really kind of put together why this would be so dangerous. Um, but pe- uh, the humpback's massive pectoral flippers may have given it an advantage over killer whales and perhaps alter the balance of power in their interactions. They are the only known cetacean that deliberately approaches killer whales, although there is some evidence that uh, southern right whales do this as well. Mm-hmm. But why the pectoral flippers? Because the pectoral flippers are five meters long. That's fifteen feet.
1: Weighing one third sorry, weighing over a ton. The flippers, the flippers can weigh over salt? a ton.
0: Are you kidding yeah.
1: me? Yep. What so they're they're one third of the total body length of the animal and they can right. weigh over one ton. one ton. So I mean that's a that's called a sledgehammer. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, and so this is my thing when you're thinking about these, I mean, when you watch humpback whales, they're slow moving, right? They're slow and they're graceful and those pectoral fins are flexible and maneuverable and they can do such beautiful dances with them in the water. So even with the, you know, you think of it going through the water, it's slow. I'm like, well, that's not going to hurt, but it's this one ton thing coming at you. If it has a little bit of speed, it's going to hurt you.
1: (laughs) Yep. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I think water can be very deceptive in that, it looks like it's going slow or that it wouldn't have that much power, but it does. So in the Bahamas, we would watch um, some you know, aggressive interactions, and you know, one dolphin would tail slap another, and the motion of it doesn't necessarily look like it's that hard, but then the sound of it hits your ears, and you're like, "Oh, ow!" Right, <laughs> like that hurt? <laughs> that hurt. Um, so I think that is what somewhat deceptive. If we really think about it, a one-ton flipper coming at you—it's gonna hurt. Now along that. The knobby leading edges are covered with sharp little barnacles. And if you have ever stepped on a barnacle or put your hand down on a barnacle, you know how easily they will slice through your skin. Yeah. Those shells that they, their protective shells that they have are very, can can be very sharp. And so now, now you not only have a one ton thing coming at you, but now it's covered in like a serrated knife. Basically (laughs) (laughs) like, you know what? I'm going to stay away from that. That's going to be great. Thanks.
1: Um love the I love the quote that they had in the or you know the, the the terminology that they use for this within the paper. So they say these formidable appendages provide protection at the anterior end of the whale, and when used in concert with the flukes, afford humpbacks with fore and aft offensive and defensive weaponry.
0: Oh, dude, like, I that's have just that awesome. I have that. I have that somewhere too, but not in that section for some reason. So I must have had it, but I also had the had that kind of highlighted. Yep, Take fore and aft. Like <laughs> you're in trouble. Yeah, and it that's unique uh, among living baleen whales, so mm-hmm. it, no one else has that. Oh, I do have it along with flukes gives forward, 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 and aft defense. But you're you reading the quote was much better um, than <laughs> um, so that summary. So it is really cool. I never thought of it that way that they mm-hmm. that they have that kind of unique combination. And so the killer whales will remain at, at quote unquote arm's length when interacting with humpback whales. And that's likely why <laughs> they've learned that if you get in close. It's going to be a problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so what's interesting is that they will use the same behaviors when competing for females on breeding grounds. So now the question is, was this, was this, has this evolved for the breeding grounds, and then just like, whoa, this is also helpful for killer whales, um, you know, or is it, was it a dual use? You know, it it evolved because of both. Um, mm-hmm. they also suggested that it's used that their pectoral fins, um, were used for prey herding, visual and acoustic signaling. Which again, if they, you slap that one ton thing on the surface of the water, which humpback whales will do, uh, can be acoustic signal for um whatever they're saying. Uh temperature regulation. So I thought about that. Like, what is, can you imagine? Like holding a one-ton flipper out of the water like like the sea lions do for rafting.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just
0: hanging out. Um, coital clasping, uh, otherwise known as holding on to your mate. <laughs> for mating, and then increased swimming proficiency and maneuverability, right? Larger larger peck bins generally are for, um, uh, you know, if they're less streamlined, it's for more shallow waters and or maneuvering in places that you need to maneuver. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the thought of why the flippers evolved that way. Um, and so I thought it was an interesting thing of like, was this, did it evolve to help protect them from, the, from killer whales or for mating or for both or what combination? Right. But I didn't really, really, really realize quite how formidable their flippers were. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, and like you said, I think that is you know, humpbacks, especially in our perception, I think are portrayed as sort of the gentle giants. You know, like we have, mm-hmm. literally, we have CDs of their recordings to calm and soothe right. us, and like you know, so we we like I think as people we generally think of them as being very non-combative, being very yeah. gentle, and and very you know. Um, almost mystical I feel like humpback whales specifically because of their calls Mm -hmm. Um, so it's just really interesting to think about it in that context of like yeah no these guys are hardcore they're
0: they're (laughs) badass is what they are yeah
1: (laughs) yeah absolutely
0: yeah totally Um, so then the next section is on anti-predator behaviors so again what what do you do to avoid predators Um, these are a fight species uh, as we described before so they will fight instead of flee um, but they do, they will modify, you know, even even species that will fight don't want to, right? It would be better if you didn't have to do that because there are a lot of risks involved with getting um, injured and also just, again, that energy expenditure that you may or may not have to be able to, to use. So they will seek refuge in shallow water, although this does seem to be less needed for humpback whales, likely because of their super awesome aft and um, forward and aft defenses. Uh, but they have shown that there's cooperative defense. Um, others, hu- other humpback whales coming in or with escorts, and then some show what's called the rosette behavior, which is uh, I think been made famous by the sperm whales, uh, where the they point their heads in and their tails out and make like a circle around the individual they're trying to protect. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and they do note that right whales will do that as well. So that does seem to be a, a behavioral option, right, for these fight species.
0: Yeah. So because again, yeah, if you're if you're you you put your your danger end out <laughs> and their mm-hmm. danger end is the uh is their flukes. so they they you know they will do that um uh they also were make were, were noting about other killer whale species so humpback whales will show similar behavior towards false killer whales and pilot whales and these two species have been known to predate on larger whale calves or other cetaceans and i like this quote from that one in hawaii uh snorkeling in the water graham ellis was watching five false killer whales quietly share a fish when a humpback came out of nowhere charged into the middle of them and scattered them like bowling pins <laughs> <laughs> the, the false killer whales were emitting high-pitched squeaks as they sped away literally screaming as they run away <laughs> That's like, right and they were just eating their fish like come on but he wasn't doing anything um, so obviously they, there may be a commonality where basically all the killer whale species evoke the same, a similar response from humpback whales for very, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, they looked at where the attacks occur. <clears throat> so, but you basically, you know, is it during feeding? Is it during breeding? Is it during migration? And basically found that they are happening in all locations. Um, they, um, the calves will be with their mom for a full year migration, right? So they're born in the breeding grounds, they migrate up to the feeding grounds, and then generally oftentimes will be migrating back to the breeding grounds and then split after that. So that first year uh, they are together. So um, it's, you know, w- when are these more likely occurring? That's the question. You can't really answer that with the the data that they have. Um, but, you know, if it's in the feeding grounds, there are more killer whales, but the calves are older and bigger. so harder mm-hmm. for them to kill. But in the breeding grounds, there are fewer killer whales, but the calves are more vulnerable. So it seems to me that the migration route would be the way to go for killer whales.
1: Right. I mean, it does make sense, especially knowing that the the calf is is still present with the mom and visible as a calf for that whole first year. So really, anytime you encounter a calf, you could potentially pick it off, depending you know, if you're a killer whale. Right. Um, so it makes sense that it would be hard to tease out specifics in this um, when it really seems more about the size of the animal versus necessarily where it's located right. at any given
0: time. Right. So then well, we started looking into how the um, humpback whales respond to killer whale vocals. So again, they're responding from over one or two kilometers away or three kilometers away, like very far away. Um, and so the difference between residents and like the mammal eating killer whales, the fish eaters and the mammal eating is that fish ki- fishing killer whales are very noisy they will they because the fish their their fish prey can't really hear them or it doesn't pay attention to them so they can be chatty the whole time they're feeding but the mammal eating killer whale the mammals that they're feeding on can hear them coming so they will oftentimes be silent <clears throat> um when they're searching for their prey and then can be actively vocalizing when when they are attacking and um afterwards especially afterwards like they're kind of like coyotes mm-hmm. where they're like totally silent and then they go but i thought this was interesting is that um active sound processing presumably becomes allowable and perhaps functionally important once contact with the prey has been established so once the prey knows you're there well now you can talk
1: right and actually it's more helpful because they do work as a team when they are taking down their prey so if you communicate with your team members as you're working to, to kill this prey together, that's actually a lot more efficient for the orcas themselves.
0: Exactly. So then that basically means that the, the humpback whales would be able to hear them start the attack basically or mm-hmm. know that it's happening. Um, they can distinguish resident versus transient calls. Um, the humpback whales approached when the killer whales were attacking. They come from farther away than they can see. So that's the other important point about how far away they are. It's not like they saw this happening and went over They are hearing it. Mm-hmm. It's the only way they know that it's happening. Um, and then sometimes, they, two times they had hydrophones in the water to listen to the killer whales, and they heard the killer whales doing their attack before the humpback whales showed up. So again, mm-hmm. something attracted the humpback whales. Um, and then it was interesting, They did note, uh, there was one study that had a fairly small sample size, but they did some playback experiments, and that they showed adverse reactions by the humpback whales to killer whale calls. So if they put killer whale calls out and didn't watch what humpbacks did. Um, which I totally get playback experiments, and they can totally, you know they can they can give a lot of information, but it also seems kind of rude.
1: I know you're just like you're freaking these poor animals out they're like whoa where is it oh my gosh what's happening oh my god somebody's coming to get me oh wait it was
0: not oh man you got me but it's
1: it's pretty it's pretty incredible and I mean they've shown this to be true for multiple different species of marine mammal that they they have a very adverse reaction to mammal eating killer whale calls like they know yeah they'll 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 flee they'll run away they'll they'll freak out like it's pretty visceral pretty reaction yeah
0: and if you play the fish eating killer whale calls they're like oh that's fine
1: we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: good. And it makes sense yeah. that they would learn the difference between those two because you don't want to waste energy in running away from something that isn't going to hurt you, right? Absolutely. Knowing your predator. Yeah. Um, so then also bellowing or other conspecific sounds from other individuals. Uh, we know very little about their vocals outside of song, right? Song has been the thing that, that basically we, we focused on. Um, so we don't know about what other social context or communicative uh, sounds they may be using. Um, so the bellowing definitely is, is quite loud, apparently. Uh, and so it's possible that other sounds, and maybe there's some so low that we can't hear it, right, out of our hearing mm-hmm. range, um, because they are generally lower register. Um, these could be heard depending on how far the sound can travel by other individuals. So perhaps <clears throat> one finds it and then they start doing those sounds and then others go, oh, hey, some that guy's in trouble or that guy's helping, let me go help hmm um so they said therefore we infer that humpbacks were reacting to calls of attacking killer whales and not to the calls of their prey which meant that approaching humpbacks probably did not know which species of prey was being attacked until they arrived at the scene mm-hmm. which i still I just this is so cool like humpbacks are so cool man yep <laughs> There's yep like whole new level of respect yeah right um and, and so interestingly they were always aggressive if the humpback whale was the prey so if they got there and they saw humpback whales being being attacked they were they were full force um but when other species the response varied from just moving away like well you know what i don't really care about you right now um all the way up to full aggression and trying to you know mob the killer whales Mm -hmm. and so this is cool it could be due to individual responses reflected reflecting differences in for example sex size age reproductive status kinship individual history with killer whales or personality of the approaching humpback. Right. So that one guy who was seen doing the thing, same thing 15 years apart is probably one that just goes in and helps no matter what. Right. Or maybe he really loves sea lions. I don't know. <laughs> but if you're going in as a juvenile and it's not a, another humpback whale, it's another species and you're not quite big enough to to confidently and you know fight, then maybe maybe you don't use that opportunity to help and you wait until right. You right. Or your and you think
1: about, yeah, exactly. What well, I was going to say too, like you, you think about these also in combination. So, like, if you're a juvenile and you haven't actually had any personal history of dealing with killer whales yet, right? Yourself, like maybe you are less confident, and you're going to mo- maybe be on the periphery or leave the situation when you determine it's not a con specific. So again, like some of these are also going to overlap in terms of relevance for the individual.
0: And what I think too is that we're talking about individual history with killer whales. If you are basing that on your history, like, oh, I know what it's like to be attacked by a killer whale, or my family was, or whatever, mm-hmm. that, to me, indicates a degree of empathy that mm-hmm. they have towards another species. They're like, yeah, I know what that's like, and that's that's cruddy. I'm going to help you out, because I can, because I'm bigger. Mm-hmm. Which is really yeah. interesting to think about. So if only we could ask the humpback whales. I know, right? <laughs> what are you thinking? Um, so then, the the mobbing behavior um, is also known as predator harassment, um, and that's when a prey species closely approaches, often harasses, and sometimes even attacks a predator, often while calling to alert or summon conspecifics, which is different than what was what is called predator inspection. So that predator inspection is like, I'm going to go up and look. Oh, okay, that's what it is. Bye bye. Right. <laughs> um, but. Interestingly, the mobbing behavior serves many of the same functions that are suggested for the predator inspection. For example, alert the to alert stalking predators that they have been detected. Right. So sometimes, if they if the predator doesn't think that I'm still not seen, but once they know they're seen, like well now the element of surprise is gone. They might alter their decision and attack. Right. Um, to bring the predator to the attention of kin and other conspecifics. Right. So the, the idea of like, hey, he's there, <laughs> right there, that guy, right there. Um, and then to summon in others uh, to assist in the mobbing and driving off of the predator. Mm-hmm. The main difference between inspection and mobbing is the level of engagement where mobbing involves harassment at close range, often with mobbers making bodily contact and sometimes even killing the predator. The main benefit of mobbing is that it can be more effective in driving off potential predators than just inspecting them, right? And I think inspecting them is basically like, if it if that's gonna alter the predator's behavior because now they don't have the element of surprise. Right. Otherwise it's not really gonna protect you.
1: Yeah. So mobbing is really common in, in things like like bird species, for example. Um certain certain monkey species will use mobbing as well. That's a pretty common um tactic, I think, for things like baboon example. Like they will they will actively mob predators um mm-hmm. and often do kill them. Um so these are things that are often in more of those group oriented species. Um yeah. fish fish will also use this as well.
0: Yeah. And there, it's been seen in, in many of those species and also like in dolphins. So dolphins will mm-hmm. mob sharks and maybe even killer whales sometimes. Um, yep. I have a fun anecdote. In the Bahamas, we were um, getting ready to get in the water with the, it was actually two pregnant females <laughs> and a, doll, a spotted dolphins. And um, we were getting our, our gear on and then the, the captain saw a fin. And so he's like, oh, so he went over um, to see thought it was a shark. And so we went over and it was, it was a tiger shark, but it, it it was under the water. And then all of a sudden just came up to the, to the surface of the water, opened its mouth like jaws and like shook his head back and forth and then dove off and then swam away. And then the, and then the spotted dolphins came back to ride the bow and were like, Doo, do, 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 do. Hmm. so we think is that they actually went and, you know, and we've seen them do that to other shark species like hammerheads actually go down and use their echolocation and, and buzz them. Yeah,
1: blast them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
0: and so I, I think that's kind of like, a, you know, that's like a mobbing behavior. Like they went to that shark and was like, no, no, you get out of here. And um, so my also takeaway message from that is don't mess with pregnant females. Cause <laughs> <laughs> they will they will tell you what for um but the, so that there's things indications like that that this mobbing behavior is, is fairly common across taxa in um in many many different species so and 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 then also you're mobbing with like 50 um you know 50 foot animals right
1: with with yeah. serrated half ton propellers on either side like okay i would run away
0: yeah exactly they're like and see ya um so the, the last thing we're gonna just chat about is that idea of altruism. So we, we you know, kind of touched on it as we've gone through here, but what is the, the reason for these, these guys doing it to, you know, is it empathy, altruism, just wanting to do the right thing for another species? Um, why would humpback whales deliberately interfere with attacking killer whales, spending the time and energy on a potentially injurious activity, whether that be damage directly or loss of time and energy for other things, especially when the killer whales were attacking other humpbacks that may not be related, or even more perplexingly, as in the majority of cases reported when they were attacking other species of prey. Like that's what this, this whole paper is. Called this. Why? Why is this occurring? Um, so there's a couple of different options. There's you know uh, kin selection, reciprocity, and altruism. And the direct evidence for kin selection is lacking for humpback whales mainly because we don't know enough about their social structure. So it's very, we basically think, at least the, the prevailing knowledge in the past has been that they they don't really have long-term ties. They don't have long-term associations. They're not as social as toothed dolphins and whales, like killer whales, mm-hmm. that have very strong social ties. And then pilot whales, for example, that will constantly mass strand because they all just stick together. Very strong social ties. Um, but because of the way that, that the, the baleen whales lives are they don't really they don't seem to have those connections however is that because they don't or because we're not looking at it in the right way um mm-hmm. some studies are showing that there is some semblance of social structure um happy whale uh, which does the you can send in fluke pictures to uh identity and um they have an ai program that's like 99 percent good at matching flukes which is amazing but they can now with the they have like the basically a a almost fully comprehensive uh id catalog across the whole ocean basin Mm. they can actually start looking at that and say like well are these guys are showing up at the same place every time together or, or periodically or whatever um kind of showing that there are more more cases than we think than we thought previously that seems like there are associations between these individuals over time Um, calves show mother directed site fidelity. So they go back to the same feeding area as mom up to 90% of the time in other studies, there's a site fidelity to the breeding grounds. Um, so they go back to their same breeding grounds. And so even though there is some crossover and some breeding grounds are are multiple different populations that are kind of mixing, but if they are staying true to specific feeding and breeding grounds, it's then much more likely that they're, it's, it's, it's likely that they are more related than we think or know and more associated with each other than we think or know, right it's just mm-hmm. a more limited population that they're living than we than we think yeah so um i think that's very cool i mean i'm all about social structure so <laughs> <laughs> i think it's super interesting to to that i'm glad that people are finally looking at that <clears throat> and not just taking it at face value that because of the way they live they don't have long-term friendships um, right I don't know
1: and I mean, you can think about just from a from a human perspective, like an example of that would be if you vacation at the same place every year, and all of the people at that, at that say campsite also come back every single year, even though you're not spending all year with those people, you get to know those same individuals, you get to be friends with them, you get to build these connections year on year on year. And it's a similar context that they're basically exploring here and saying like, okay, they might not spend all year together. But if you're overlapping with these individuals at regular intervals, and they're the same animals you are likely to build up some level of relationship with them over the course of the years.
0: Exactly. And so I think a great example of this is my friend, um, my friend Phyllis. She goes to Tori Amos concerts, but she goes like on tour. She goes to like all the concerts. So she'll go travel around Europe and then she goes to the US. And at each show, she has different groups of friends that she's been Mm. year after year after year. So she doesn't spend most of the year with them. But has mm-hmm. these very strong connections and relationships with these people that she sees once or twice a year when these these gatherings occur.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: similar idea. So it's it's good to out, to think outside of what we think about associations being um, and how important they are to the individuals in the population. Mm-hmm. Um, so then um, you know, but the question then is, you know, what about helping other species? There's there's little risk to the adult humpback whales, but really no benefit to them in particular. But it still could increase their fitness through kin selection or reciprocity. There may be something that is still benefiting them. And this would be the long game, right? So not immediately. They're not getting an immediate benefit by saving that sea lion. But maybe there's something else in some, you know, either internally in their own population, like someone else goes, Oh hey, that was really cool you did that. I like you more. I'm going to mate with you or whatever. That's possible, mm-hmm. right? That that kind of thing is a signal. Um And so, could this behavior uh, and side effect be a side effect that spills over to other species? Um, And the last kind of quote that they, um, I'm going to read here is: "This is a a spillover of an interspecific pattern into the domain of more distant, i.e., interspecific relationships." We suggest that humpbacks providing benefits to other potential prey species, even if unintentional, could be a focus of future research into possible genetic or cultural drivers of interspecific altruism. So this. it's kind of like did the did the peck fins and um, evolve for mating and then spill over to protecting killer whales did this they always helped humpback whales well now it's so it's such an ingrained part of their culture that they just do it for everybody mm-hmm. and they still get some kind of benefit from it that we just can't right, right? just because there's we can't see the benefit doesn't mean there is one. <laughs> right so i think that that absence of what was it absence of evidence is not evidence yes yep so i think that's an important one to remember throughout this is that we're still learning so much about these individuals and it's great that we're looking more into these intricacies and differences that um we just haven't before you know and thinking Mm -hmm. outside the box like yeah you know what maybe they have associations and even if they don't look like the other associations we're used to seeing with um toothed whales dolphins and, and whatnot um could still be very important to their population and their survival you know how they survive over time yeah so So that's it we did it i think (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot of information
1: in that one a lot of
0: information super interesting like it's just so cool again seeing the idea that altruism could be something that's outside of humans that these animals could be doing this on purpose and and then and then understanding why and really understanding more about who they are as beings right and mm-hmm. um i would suggest that you also go back or um and listen to the roger Payne episode the tribute to roger Payne episode um that i did and he talks about this basically like these are worth saving these animals for many reasons but like on top of this like these kind of things this is this is a, a species or, or that's worth trying to interact with more <laughs> and understand yeah. more um and we can learn a lot about ourselves, I think, through that. And mm-hmm. yeah. so. um, with that, we won't talk any longer because then um, uh, it'll be really long. So <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks for joining us on this episode. Again, that was Pittman et al. and Marine Mammal, um, Marine Mammal Science. And I'll post the link to the paper in the show notes. Um, be sure to listen. Uh, Follow us on our Instagram and Facebook and check out our merch store on the website. There's lots of cool merch there for um, any kind of party or birthday or celebration that you uh, want to share with other people. Uh, and next time should be a Marine mammal highlight. So keep an eye on the Instagram and um, the Instagram stories for that. Uh, again, we apologize for not giving you a choice last time, but we just were too Hope keen. you enjoyed it. Yeah. The, the Brutus Whale well was just too <laughs> cool. So next time we promise we'll give you a choice. Um, And so with that, we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. This was brought to you by Pacific Mammal Research, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Check out our website, www.pacmam.org, that's P-A-C-M-A-M, to learn more about us, our research, and the educational opportunities that we provide. Also, help us continue providing fun and educational content like this by donating today. Your help is how we can continue to do our work and share it with you. Thanks.